Um, all right, so at uh, today uh, on the uh, Brain of the Firm reading group uh, from General Intellect Unit, we are reading uh, chapter eight, uh, Autonomy. And what Beer has to say about this at the beginning uh, of the section is that uh, by chapter eight, the story is developing well. We are dealing with one of the most vexed questions in modern management, the topic of autonomy. If a division of the firm were really and truly autonomous, it would not be a part of the firm at all. In the same way, if the heart or the liver were really and truly autonomous, they might decide to renegue on the body. On the other hand, if the, uh, sorry, yeah, on the other hand, if the heart and liver were not more or less autonomous, we would have to remember to tell them what to do all the time, and we would be dead in 10 minutes. In the same way, if a division of the firm <coughs> is not more or less autonomous, the main board has to run it directly, which is equally impossible. <coughs> Excuse me. Besides, the divisional staff would resign. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 you know, again, the Soviet Union is very much brought to mind here with the constant reshuffling and reform and trying to find a formula for uh, effective uh, organization uh, that would not run into these problems. But of course, in the end, the divisional staff did resign uh, and the state was uh, eliminated. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty good summary of this chapter. It's, it's, it's getting at the main points, but of course, all the, those main points are developed through a very extensive uh, and somewhat turgid discussion of physiology. Uh, I, I can't say this is one of my favorite chapters in the book. Uh, it's quite, uh, it, you know, I think I was talking to Lauren about the book earlier and she was saying like, well, it's pretty ironic that this chapter follows the one about filtering because the filtering in this chapter was largely unsuccessful. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of errata or sorry, not errata, but, uh, uh, miscellaneous trivia in it that doesn't really need to be there. Uh, that being said, it does have some interesting points, uh, for sort of developing towards the VSM. Um, so general thoughts on chapter eight, I've laid mine out. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Uh, by the way, if anyone's new here and you want to speak, just press the raise hand button at the bottom left of the screen and you can uh, get in the stack. I'll call you out. So uh, go ahead, Shane. Yep, uh, in agreement that this is not a great, uh, it, it's not an excellent chapter in this sort of sense. Um, I find a lot of the physiology stuff just very hard to follow and, um, I don't know, it's a bit too particular. I can never remember what the fuck a medulla is, uh, so it just, it's quite hard to follow. Um, overall impressions, though, I think um, th this is this is kind of tricky because the the kind of autonomy that we get, like this, this model of autonomy, is actually quite a bit more complex and weird than we're accustomed to thinking of, um, especially in, like, you know, political sort of stuff. We, we think of autonomy as just being, like, purely, like, local determination or something like this, or just completely freewheeling sort of thing. But the autonomic nervous system is is not all that local like it's it's a lot of participating components sort of involved with each other and there's a lot of kind of up down and sideways cross communication going on such that um it's it's just it's just more complex than our our usual like oh local all on its own and i think when when we get the kind of general descriptions of the vsm and i think we've definitely done this on the show we kind of like make analogies to like oh well you know the, the lungs basically run themselves which is, it's a, it's a nice sort of compressed way of representing it. But like, as we can see at, see at the back of the chapter, it's not actually the case. The lungs are maybe a third of the system that actually runs the lungs. It's pretty strange, right? There's, there's a lot going on all, all over the place, but it is autonomic. 
it's not it's not localized, but it is autonomous. And I think that that can kind of screw with our heads a little right? um, if we keep to this very, um, I guess, sort of naive model of autonomy as just being entirely about local determination. Like distributed determination is definitely a thing, but it's still autonomous. Tricky stuff, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, again, it's sort of brought to mind, I think what Jeremy brought up earlier, this idea of like a holographic uh, uh, interaction of uh, the different organs. Um, you can kind of see them as autonomous or co-determined, depending on how you look at it. Um, Jeremy, go ahead. So I guess I'm in the minority because I really like this chapter and I'm reading the book now for the third time. And the first time I read it, this chapter just horribly confused me. I think the flaw in the chapter is the chapter is subtly telling you things about the VSM, but you haven't seen the VSM yet. And the idea, this is his working definition of autonomy. He's presenting it here, and he's going to be using it later. And there's a couple of really key pieces that get thrown in here, but they get thrown in here so subtly that it's kind of hard to pick up that they're there. His concept of uh, entelechy comes out of this. Um, but also the idea that the two control mechanisms in this system are going to be arousal and inhibition. I mean, it's, it's not an accident that in the USA, the two worst kinds of drug addiction are methamphetamines and opiates, because people are forced to work even when they're in agony, even when they physically can't do it. And so they need methamphetamines to arouse them to the point where they can work and opiates to inhibit to them to the point where they can recover. And so there's a whole lot going on here. It's not an accident the chapter is called autonomy. This is his statement about autonomy, whether it's political, whether it's structural or procedural. So I actually like it because I think there's an awful lot going on in here. I think the, the passage we'll see about the lateral horizontal forms of communication that aren't noticed by the structure is really, really important stuff. So yeah, I'm defending the chapter. Fair enough. Uh, I, I, you know, I agree. There's a lot of sort of groundwork for the VSM that's laid here. Uh, the communication uh, is really the sticking point for me. Uh, uh, but uh, we can discuss those important points and hopefully, uh, you know, find the gems in the rough. Uh, uh, Lauren, uh, and then Matt, and then uh, we'll move on to Steve. Okay, I'll be quick. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think like I, I have kind of two, maybe three things to say about my like, general thoughts. One is... Um, I sick my Jeremy said I, I read it. I was like, oh, I can tell I'm going to have to go back and reread this because um, it sets up a lot of really important concepts. Uh, but for me, I think there was just a bit of um, that kind of chicken and egg thing that you get when trying to explain concepts from multiple different perspectives. It's hard to know like which piece of information to put before the other because they both kind of need each other to make sense. So I, yeah, I, I I, I appreciate this chapter, even though for for me, without a biology background, <laughs> um, there was a lot of like uh, interpretation I had to do um, to sort of like work with the chapter. Um, this, but the, the more sort of other thought I had in terms of what it was saying was, um, I'm really interested in reading those further chapters to better understand this concept of autonomy because he, yeah, he talks about arousal and control. And I think there's a lot of really interesting things that go on around like your autonomy or your agency is like a, a human being, <laughs> both like in your, within your own physiology and then like the organizations that you're a part of, because um, I, I'm not going to go to like a, a big rebel about consent, <laughs> like agency and whatever, but uh, yeah, I, I can see him playing with some of those concepts, um, and I'm really excited to see how 
they relate to um, work experiences. I was for sure going, oh yeah, that was like the time at my job when this happened. <laughs> so like I, I, I can relate to it on a kind of a personal level there too. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. I think, um, sorry, lost the point that I had to make. Uh, <laughs> I'll move on uh, then to Matt. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I also dug this chapter, but, uh, um, you know, um, there, there seemed to be a com com common thread of uh, uh, I dug it partially because, um, you know, like I actually used to uh, work in a neurology lab. Um, uh, uh, that did like spinal surgery stuff. So, you know, like I, I used to be kind, kind of grooving on this. I, I feel like if, if you're just getting thrown all these anatomy names, like it and weird, like chemical processes, like, like at the same time and like, uh, yeah, come on, dude, explain what row CO2 means. Like that's, <laughs> don't just throw that at people. But yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and uh, what's also, uh, you know, adding another thread to that, you know, Part of the reason I was excited to take that uh, neurology uh, lab uh, job and you know really get into the autonomic nervous system was because um, uh, um, uh, what's it some um, uh, um, I read uh, Norbert Wiener a couple of years earlier and like was like oh okay you know like uh, this could be like another piece of that and then you know I never really got a chance to like uh, um, put those two together so like this is kind of yeah you know, this is kind of twelve years in the making. <laughs> Yeah, cool. Um, actually, I remember what I was going to say in response to Lauren's point, which was it reminds me of uh, when I w was doing the first capital reading group I did uh, and somebody asked, like, you know, like, why, like, why is Marx's writing here so obtuse? And like, why is it so bogged down in details? Why is it like, why can't he just get to the damn point? Um, and, uh, you know, the thing that occurred to me in response to that is that, like, Marx was trying to, like, lay out an original argument, um, and that requires a lot more groundwork because you are introducing new concepts to a discussion, um, that are going to be difficult, uh, or they're going to be controversial. And so you have to back up your points. And I think there's a lot of like the, the 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 physiological information in this chapter is kind of a lot of that. Like it's backing up the points. Um, so, you know, I, I still think that like probably people could like at this point, uh, people could probably come up with a better version of capital that's like works off of established knowledge rather than, uh, you know, uh, introducing these original points by doing showing your work. Uh, but uh, it may be something similar for, for this, but, uh, you know, I appreciate that Beer was introducing some novel ideas here. And so th that that can be a detail oriented thing. Um, OK, let's go to Steve and then Jake. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I found the, the physiology stuff hard to follow, but, you know, I get to where he's going with this. And I think like it started it's starting to click into place more through this, which uh, to this chapter that what he's been leading up to that to me, like the takeaway of the really interesting thing here is not the autonomy per se, but it's the, the structure in the organization that is in place now that's allowing autonomy at each of those levels. Right. And when we typically look at sort of self-organizing autonomous systems, um, it ends up, I, th I think in general being more black boxy, you know, let's do big data and figure it out, figure out what to do in between. And I think, you know, there's a lot, you often just lose the fact that a little bit of structure and organization within that goes an awful lot long way. And I, you know, most people that I see aren't really designing systems in such a way that have these like buttresses or guideposts in there. And um, I think that that's like something that's really sort of fundamentally missing with looking at looking at autonomy, because as we saw with like, you know, the complexity in chapter or whatever it was, three or four, you know, it's really just too much. And it'll take forever to actually learn anything if you're actually trying to learn it. And it'll, it's an awful big gamble if you um, put in or if you do the design work to hope that it can actually cover the space. But like if you can break it down and decompose it and organize it in the way that he's that's starting to be clear. And I guess like the justification of going through the, the physiology is like, you know, is the reason to say, hey, look, you know, I'm not just making this structure and this this organization up. There's a sound biological basis for it and it works. Um, so it's less like an argument and more like 
you know, existence proof that you can organize a system in such a way that you have the structure and at the end of the day, the end result is you actually have something that like is viable, I guess is the argument that he is ultimately laying out. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, excellent way to put it. Um, Jake, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, so I, this is like the first book of beers that I've read. Um, so I don't really have like, the only exposure to the DSM or anything is through the podcast. So I'm probably a little like less, like I can't really quite put it all in place yet, you know? Um, but I do have some familiarity with like biology, um, but more more from a genetic standpoint, so like lower levels. Um, and I was just, it kind of reminded me like the way he was talking about the sort of the inhibition and um, the, the other, the opposite one, I forget the... Arousal. Um, arousal, yeah, that's it, exactly. As just like the, there's, there's like inhibition, but then there can be, I, I don't know if this is true on the neurophysiological standpoint, but from a genetic standpoint, there's positive and negative inhibition and positive and negative arousal. And so just thinking about that of ways to like, like inhibit something in a way that causes something else to be like more of it to happen. Uh, and I, I don't know how that quite relates to the larger picture, but just thinking about that is, is interesting. Um, uh, can you yeah. just like clarify what uh, positive and negative inhibition and arousal are? Yeah, I mean, so that the, the word isn't, uh, in genetics at least, it's describing like a piece of DNA that binds to another piece of DNA that causes either more protein to be made or less protein to be made. And then the reverse would be when a piece of DNA is removed from another piece of DNA or protein, not necessarily DNA, but um, and causes more or less of the protein to be made. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like how, um, you know, if you, if you consume alcohol, you're initially going to get a high off of that, even though it's it's an inhibitive uh, sort of uh, uh, stimulus, because um, it's inhibiting the inhibitor. Um, uh, okay, that's that's interesting for sure. Um, it definitely would be worth uh, considering, like you know, what kind of uh, you know organizational measures would could correspond to that. Uh, Matt, go ahead. So uh, I want to quickly point out that, yeah, the, in the nervous system too, yeah, like uh, there's, um, you know, uh, pumping up uh, inhibition and and dialing down inhibition and uh, dialing up, um, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, stimulation and uh, dialing down stimulation and you know the 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 two are not equivalent. Um, uh, uh, like uh, uh, increasing um, uh, um, or yeah, d d yeah, l l like uh, uh, so with the alcohol, like you know, d d decreasing inhibition isn't actually you know drinking alcohol isn't actually the same as taking uppers. And uh, I think that's what you people would call the negation of the negation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it is in a sense a negation of the negation. Um, so uh, there we go. That's the alcohol argument for alcohol. Uh, you achieve uh, dialectical synthesis through drinking alcohol. Um, wonderful. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so um, let's go on then to actually like dive into this chapter. Uh, so uh, we start out with the discussion of, um, you know, why homeostasis is necessary, how autonomy can figure into organizations. Um, now, uh, the th way these things to these two things come together, uh, he says, uh, in the second paragraph on 103, the company board expects that its autonomous internal management can cope with these matters and the conscious part of the brain expects the same mutatis mutandis of its autonomic nervous system. So, like, you know, as Beer said in that short summary, these two things have to be able to do their jobs. If you don't have either one functioning properly or if you have one overstepping, uh, then you're screwed. It's not going to work out. They have to work together. Um, 
So, uh, so he's talking about the, uh, okay. So on 104, he starts talking about autonomic systems. Um, and so he says, if there's something that goes out of balance, uh, the autonomic control must correct it. As was shown also, uh, as was shown, was also shown in chapter two, the first necessity is to detect a change. Receptors then alter their state, transducing the change into afferent impulses. These go to the control center, are in some fashion computed with, and the necessary adjustments are made through the motor part of the system. This is the autonomic reflex. In the enterprise, we are concerned with what it has in the past at least been a middle management function. In the body too, the control resides in the middle section of the spinal cord, known as the thoracolumbar outflow, or to use a more traditional and possibly more familiar term, the sympathetic nervous system. Um, figure 15 purports to show the workings of the famous reflex arc. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so if someone's leg is prodded, even though he's asleep and does not wake, his leg spontaneously withdraws. Similarly, when we were management trainees, we knew how a department manager exercised cost control. A receptor, probably a cost clerk, detected a variance which is to say a discrepancy between standard costs is agreed and actual costs is incurred. An afferent impulse went into the manager who took a decision and sent a message to the effectors on the shop floor to correct the trouble. As a start, this account of the matter is not too bad. As we have seen, there have to be um, afferent and efferent parts to a control system, into and out of which messages are transduced by receptors and effectors respectively. In between, there has to be a switching device of some kind. Moreover, we saw in Chapter 2 the sense in which a circuit is best described as a negatively controlled feedback rather than an emitter of instructions. And already, the managerial comparison is clear because the firm really runs itself and the manager intervenes by exception. Even so, this reflex arc explanation will not do because it is too simplified. No element of control in an integral, viable system is ever quite as localized, quite so self-sufficient as this. In both the body and the firm, we try hard to describe the way control works neatly and simply by classifying what goes on in a number of separate dimensions and according to a number of separate conventions. But a more thorough and less compartmentalized account is needed for real understanding in both cases. The nervous system relies heavily on varying involved forms of interaction between its major components, and what is survival-worthy in the organism largely depends on them. Diagnostically, for instance, this means that a pain in the arm is not necessarily to be treated with embrocation. It may well be a symptom of heart disease, and in industry, heavy costs in an office may result in a room full of people being replaced by a computer, while the informational links used by the human beings are cut off because they were not understood. A managerial society, like a nervous system, <coughs> relies heavily on intercommunication, which does not at first sight belong to the subsystem under study. All right, so any, any comments on this uh, section here? Uh, Shane, go ahead. And yeah, I think this, this the, the last um, the last statement there is really crucial, right? That like the the communication, the intercommunication that is actually responsible for performing the regulation may not be localized to the thing that you're looking at. Um, I think that's on the on my second or third read of this, it's more clear that that's a very important point here. Um, that you know, like we're, we're again this this entity thinking problem, right? We're so accustomed to studying identifiable objects or identifiable subsystems, but then we can, I think, looking at it through lens of control theory, we can we can find that it's actually quite quite delocalized from the thing that we're looking at, and yet the delocalized control effect is actually embedded in the thing somehow. It's 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 much weirder than we're accustomed to dealing with, and I've I've had to really kind of 
juggle my brain around to try and make it think in this way except that as I like rather than thinking in the kind of like oh gosh that's a cop you know just like mm, pick up the cop put it down again sort of way um right um yeah it's not so much a question of the reflex arc as it is like you know a reflex function which is much more distributed uh, than the simplified example would have you believe, even though the simplified example does tell you something useful, is not quite enough. Uh, Lauren, go ahead. Uh, for some reason, this part reminded me of, uh, well, I, I, I sort of looked at it in relation to our modern day work culture, where um, in a lot of workplaces, there's certain expectations, like sort of to, like burnout culture, as I'm talking about, and like, um, how much like that sort of constant state of arousal or like signaling from stimulus that's like coming at you can really in inhibit your ability to like read those signals like calmly and like rationally and not to sort of have that reflex reaction and it reminded me of when I first moved to the states <laughs> and I got an office job there and like freaked out <laughs> because um, they're like, oh, yeah, everyone takes their computers home. You know, everyone on average works like 50 hours a week, maybe 80. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, it was like, it was it was too much. Um, and it's, so I, I was interested to think about like, um, yeah, like what the reflexes and arousal and control sort of look like in like in practice in our really fucked up capitalist society. Yeah. So they don't really talk here about the amplitude of stimulus uh, or the adjustment of the reflex. But those are definitely things you can read into this and then, like, consider how this, ki this kind of, like, uh, holographic or nastomotic character of many systems, inter like, co-interacting could, like, you know, uh, over-amplify things to the point that you do get burnout um, you know, whether you're thinking about a person or a nerve or a circuit or whatever, uh, blow your capacitors, um, so to speak. Uh, okay. Uh, um, Jake, go ahead. Yeah. I was actually also like kind of thinking about burnout and maybe this applies a little bit towards like a couple pages past this where it talks about like the series of nerves, but just this idea of like, a single person being, and I, I'm thinking about this in terms of like the political organization that I'm involved in and just thinking about how to like put the BSM map it onto what we're doing. Um, but just like having a lot of communication go through one person, especially in like a non-formalized way leads to this burnout because that all this stuff that goes on them and if they don't do it, then no one else will because there's nothing in there's nothing written down. There's no routines or whatever of how to do this thing. It just happens because this one person knows how to do it. Um, and just the idea of like, I don't know if that's just the signal bouncing around within that person, you know, until that like shoots out in stress waves or whatever. But yeah, just this idea of um, of that reflex of like a signal moving through someone um, in a sense, you know. And then communicating to other different different parts of the organization, different people involved in whatever the decision is, or yeah, and just just ways that like the body does this very well. There's a lot of redundancy and there's a lot of uh, like a lot of pathways. So it's not just running down a single like overloaded circuit kind of pathway, but it's like distributed evenly. And so just I've just been thinking a lot about how to how to do that distribution in a in a specific way, not, I don't know what that way is, but just in a way that's specified so that other people can like hop onto it and off of it as needed. Um, so I don't know, just. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's certainly something I'm dealing with currently as well, uh, being uh, overloaded as a coordinator and trying to find ways to offload. Um, I, uh, you know, I think this also goes to show again that like rules of thumb not necessarily are like they're not necessarily good 
you know, contrary to what Heidegger might have you believe, uh, they're they're actually bad sometimes uh, because yeah, they're not really very well thought through, and they can create chronic problems or just sudden collapse uh, because something's fine until it's not, and then it collapses. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. There's um. That stuff is all very crucial, right? And I think, um, especially the rules of thumb, right? Because I think the way we often think about these things um, is that kind of centralization is is good, and that's that's kind of the optimal way to do things. And when something is distributed, it's kind of degenerated somehow, like that. It's it's a lesser form, like. And this is usually this is usually true in the kind of like petty fiefdoms of um, uh, you know managerial cultures in in organizations, right? Like everyone wants to, in, in, like yes, this stuff causes burnout, but in a, in a way, the subject often wants the burnout. Like they want to be the little resistor at the middle of the circuit that's just glowing white hot because all the current is passing through it, because the mental model of control. Is very like that. We we think of control as these like centralized functions that are embodied in particular identifiable entities, whether that's you know um, uh, particular departments or particular people. And I think this is probably why I kind of stress the kind of like trying to get away from entity thinking stuff because if you over-identify for the person, then the person can never escape the function. Like the, the the crank only gets turned when I turn the crank. You know, it's like that. And once I stop turning the crank, it doesn't get turned again. That's her problem. I think that also ties in with a kind of activist mindset that we see in a lot of left kind of places where the people are unfortunately over-identified with their activity, that the function that they're doing. And once they stop doing the activity, the organization fucking collapses, right? Like, um, and... It's unfortunate because, like, those are those are because those are rules of thumb. We're often not even aware that they're happening. Like, what what the the arc of this thing is that five or six people get together to do oh fuck I don't know tenant organizing or something. They plow all their energy into it. They turn the crank as fast as possible, and then they they stop doing it because they burn out. And then there's no more tenant organizing, and everyone's kind of left wondering like how the what the fuck happened? You know, it's like it, it's not inscrutable as such. Like it is possible to understand why this would happen that like, if you push all this electricity through a single neuron, it's just going to fucking explode. If you over identify functions with particular objects, it's going to explode. Beer's angle on this is very different where distribution and redundancy and like distributed load and load balancing is a service. Like it is a good thing to do that. And we should always try to do it. In fact, the centralization and the over-identification is the degenerate form of that, um, which is very upside down from what we're accustomed to thinking, right? Like we're accustomed to thinking, oh, the function is identified with me. If I give up the function and distribute it among peers, then that's that's lesser somehow. We should instead think of that as being much more. The distributed function is always better than the centralized one. Okay, yeah, so um, I, I think we're gonna see Beer give a concrete example of what you're talking about, Shane, uh, coming up here. Um, so, uh, okay, so he says, um, when thinking about automation, it is a mistake to regard the company system of control and communication as homogeneous. Hierarchical control, whereby instructions are passed down the line, is not the only dimension of control. So as you were saying, uh, Shane, uh, the point is very clear in the physiological model from which we may learn. In the case of the autonomic reflex, corrective action cannot be cannot in fact be taken in one place without regard to its effect on other proximate activities. So, like this is really obvious when you think about it. Like you know, um, you know, you're going to have like that. Uh, Ref like that knee reflex reflex action and you're going to uh slam your leg into a giant bar uh you pro that re that reflex will trigger but you're probably also going to inhibit it because it's going to cause damage to the system as a whole um you know similarly like i mean there's just a million examples you could think of right that's just an obvious one but the systems have to do, kind of do a check-in with the other systems to see if, like, yeah, if this is going to cause a cascading cat catastrophic outcome uh, or just significant damage to the system. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, we often tend to think about these systems in isolation 
when we think about autonomic responses. Um, okay. Uh, managers at higher and lower levels on the central command axis, the hierarchical dimension will either influence this apparently local decision or at least need to know about it. They already know about planned activity because this originates in the brain uh, or the highest company control center, the senior management. Um, the main pathways up and down the central command axis are used to interrelate the activities of the different departments and functions within the total plan. This is a sufficiently complex business, whether for the motoneurons of the spinal cord or for the different departmental controllers in the firm. But when it comes to reflex arcs of the autonomic system, the local management is decentralized and therefore the problem of communication up and down the system is not easy. Um, in industry, indeed, there is rarely any formal arrangement for coping with the problem. Take the case of two production departments, both of which are concerned with the manufacture of the same set of project, products but each of which undertakes a distinct set of operations. The actual materials they work are passed back and forth between them. Now the plan to which they are working is agreed, it has been formulated in the central command axis, and each department is trying to work it. The manager of each department belongs to the central axis, so any major deviation from the plan, uh, brought about perhaps by a change in the market, can also be organized centrally as modification. To affect the plan, each manager delegates part of the work to under-managers or foremen who work peripherally to the center. The way in which their activities are conducted includes, above all, the necessity to maintain the stable internal environment of the firm. They execute the plan in terms of a balanced autonomic activity, involving the sensible use of manpower, the proper loading of machinery, the intelligent manipulation of stocks, the control of maintenance, the observance of quality standards, the exercise of an appropriate degree of inspection, and a great many more aspects of life which must be watched. What the peripheral commanders do is certainly monitored by the departmental office. The information which comes to them passes on to the center where constant minor adjustments to the general plan have to be made to correct the misalignments which real events are creating on the shop floor. An appropriate change in plan is made and the message returns demanding action from several activities which must, must work together to affect the change. Um, so, you know, this, this idea of, of load balancing uh, is really important. Right, uh, that autonomic load balancing is essential to this system working, uh, but also reporting information up is essential because that's going to do the more general uh, load balancing. Right, uh, so I, uh, let's let's look at this um, diagram here. Uh, so look now at this new diagram of a reflex arc, which shows more of the detail than we, we saw before. Both the afferent neuron, which transmits the input information about the misalignment, and the motor neurons, which give effect to the change in plan, lie outside the central axis. The major motor neuron inside, which is part of the hierarchical command system, has actually made the decision autonomically. This reflex models the industrial reflex perfectly well, even to its mode of working. For the afferent neuron fires towards the central column only after it has noted sufficiently significant information about the process. It is sensing, uh, the process it is sensing to carry it over its threshold. Similarly, the central motoneuron will not fire until its threshold is also exceeded. And indeed, this will not in practice be likely to occur in either the body or the firm unless several sensory inputs relayed by several afferent neurons report the need for a change in plan. Um, okay, so uh, the difference here between the previous reflex diagram and the one that we're looking at now um, is that, okay, so we've got the afferent coming in and now where does that even start? It, oh, I see, okay. So 
<laughs> Try to follow the spaghetti diagram and see where 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 does the information actually come in on this thing? Uh, it's not great, is it? Um, it it's I not. Think it, I, I I think I see it coming in at the bottom. At the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's coming in at the bottom, and going. Yes. Going up, uh, wait, hang on, track that, this line is, no, that's on the efferent side. Where is so I think it might heck? be worth comparing this diagram yeah. to the previous one. So if you, if you compare, we're looking at figure 16, and you compare it to figure 15. In figure 15, the spinal column is coupled directly to the skin and muscle. Right? Yeah. So the data, the data is read straight off the skin, and it's pumped straight into the muscle. Yeah. In this... I, th I think on figure 16, the skin and muscle aren't actually on the diagram, but they're implanted they're not. in there. And we're looking at a middle tier of yep. uh, threshold detectors that are... So it, it's it's just kind of saying that like it's it's not directly coupled to the central column. It's actually going through these middle layers of control. Um, but I kind of do wish he'd just put in the little skin and muscle bit somewhere in the bottom yeah. or something. Like, so it seems as though... Um... Yeah, the afferent is coming, like, from somewhere. And as he says in the description, there's, like, a decision being made in the spinal column. And then that's going out to the afferent at the bottom, as well as being indicated to the top. And then, like, maybe the reef, like, the, the feedback from the afferent is going down the spinal column. Uh, it's it's a little bit unclear what's going on here, but I think his his, his text description is a lot clearer than the diagram. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. So this uh, he's talking about the paravertebral ganglionic chain, and that's I know that's a mouthful, but what he's showing that independent of the spine, all of this up and down lateral communication is taking place. That really, at this point, there's nothing going up the spine. There's nothing going down the spine. There are things going up and down the paravertebral ganglionic chain, but that's not the spine. And Got it. That, when that flips over into the VSM and into the way organizations organize, it's really important. I mean, this is why this chapter is called Autonomy. There's lots of stuff going on that has nothing to do with central command. Right. Uh, yeah, I can I can picture the VSM in my head and how, like, the different system ones are connected to each other independent of that spinal column. Uh, so that, that, that does help to clarify what he's trying to get at quite a bit. Um, excuse me. Okay. Um... So there's an example from industry, uh, you know, it's saying like you can't transmit all of the information from the department up to central command because that's just too much information. Um, nevertheless, uh, where we kind of work it out. Um, what actually happens is that the under managers or foremen who are responsible through their clerks for the afferent input which sponsors change and who are also responsible through their charge hands, for instance, uh, for the efferent output which affects change are in direct communication with each other. There is a complete society of peripheral management which operates for the most part at the social level and whose control language is not hierarchical in the sense of line command but informational. Thus, long before any news about the progress of a batch of production that has been held up could possibly reach another department through the central command axis, the second department knows. In fact, the news will probably never become disentangled from what is going on in the affected departmental headquarters because all concerned know that what is going on peripherally ceases to be news by the time it can be uttered through these channels. I have collected scores of examples of this. Sometimes very often, perhaps, the foreman in the related department make it their business to keep an intimate touch. Perhaps they walk across the road and drink tea together. Maybe they telephone. You'd better know, Charlie, that 
in a few extreme, extreme cases, it was not uh, possible to discover how the messages were transmitted, but transmitted they certainly were. Um, one case in particular remains vivid after many years. This was where the productivity of one department measured by comparing actual against planned outputs in elaborate detail varied inversely with the amount of stock occurring in its servicing department 20 miles away. The time lag on this servo was very much less than it would have been under any official system because it worked on a shift or eight hour phase, whereas it took at least three days to obtain and evaluate proper measurements, even when a team of scientists made a special investigation. This peripheral communication system, which is parallel to the vertical command axis, deals in a different dimension of control from that of volitional command. The people uh, concerned in it have neither the knowledge nor the opportunity deliberately to reshape plans that have been formulated as a matter of intent. They do have the power to apply feedback. The difference is important for this reason. If under managers are regarded as extensions of the central managers and their jobs are regarded as being of the same kind but embracing more detail, then the whole control system becomes admonitory instead of self-regulating. In particular, when the systems analysts move in to undertake studies aimed at improving control, the whole system may become over-centralized. At worst, the informal links between peripheral under-managers may be cut. This can happen through a total failure to understand how the system really works. I have seen it ruled that such unofficial interaction must cease on the grounds that the central authority was being abrogated. In the limiting case where the departmental outstation is fully automated, there is no possible way in which the social link can be maintained. Computers do not just happen to develop the trick of shouting to each other across the void as human beings always do. Um, so there's a lot going on there uh, for sure. Any comments on this? Uh, uh, yeah, Mark, go ahead. Uh, hopefully this will work. Um, yeah, so this this section actually, um, uh, this is one of the ones that stuck out to me the most in this kind of whole section of the thing. And uh, yeah, it's just interesting, although, um, and it also kind of reminded me of uh, one of the talks I saw on YouTube uh, with Beer in the 80s when he's talking about cyber sin and the speed of of data he was able to collect versus, you know, and telling Harold Wilson about it because it would take about six months to do what they could do daily <laughs> in the UK. Um, so yeah, this, this really stands out. And just uh, the fact of just how the various ways, you know, going for tea or popping up from your cubicle or whatever it is, you know, calling somebody because you know the person to call and how important that is and how it can, you know, and then that some managers would be aware aware enough of that how much of that actually goes on to be wary of any kind of automation process that's just going to go into that whole, you know, vertical and and or even tree structure, which you mentioned here, is still is still too vertical. And so that's uh, part of the reason that I got a little confused when I was rereading this is that, and then he goes into the sympathetic. Um, systems because this seems way more horizontal focused and then the arousal and inhibitions are still uh, I mean they're not part of the command structure but they are related to kind of upper lower levels but um uh, so maybe somebody else can expand on that but anyways uh, that's kind of my main thoughts on this section right right um yeah though this is this is super important uh stuff and <sighs> You know, again, like it makes me think about how people, managers in the Soviet Union were punished for doing any kind of horizontal coordination of this sort uh, in uh, any kind of like above board, non black market way, because it was seen as interfering with the plan um, when, in fact, it was the only thing keeping the plan even remotely working. Um, OK. Uh, Jeremy and then Shane. Yeah, these two paragraphs are my favorite paragraphs in the chapter. And because my work history 
has been about creating these things and seeing them demolished over and over again. Like I've had so many times where I've been called into a supervisor's office and chewed out for creating horizontal systems. And so it hits really close to home for me because you can't get anything done without these horizontal systems. And yet in the world of work, especially in the USA, it's constantly considered clandestine to do this. And I love this idea that there's a bunch of British foremen with flat caps having tea together. And the moment they're told not to do it, the whole firm collapses. Because that's really been my experience. I've always been trying to find the people having the tea. And what I love about this is Beer says in some cases, they weren't able to find the cafe where the people were having the tea and had no evidence that anything was taking place, but it obviously was. And, you know, it's something Marx says where Marx, you know, says, you know, a lot of the processes of capitalism are hidden and they're, and because they're hidden, they're not talked about. But if you see evidence of their existence, then you can see by the effect they have that they exist, even if you can't spot them directly. And so Beer is talking about a whole way that systems are organized that's invisible to, to McKinsey or to Deloitte. You know, you get these advisors coming in and all they want to create is a top-down mechanistic hierarchy. And it's made much worse if they buy some sort of software system that does it for them. You know, um, I've been in hospital IT now for for many years, and a lot of times the doctors, especially older doctors, are dragged kicking and screaming into creating these EMR systems, and a lot of it is because it completely guts their workflow. Yeah, uh, I'm reminded of an example that... Um an old advisor of mine brought up about wildcat strikes in the U.S., I think in the 60s and 70s. Uh, there was one that happened where basically, like, you know, the managers, the, the, the managers from Central were sent in to figure out, like, why the hell are the workers striking? What's going on? Um, and they were there was negotiations that were going on, wage negotiations between the union and management and there was a tacit understanding on the workplace that there were certain things that the workers could take from the workplace that were not included in their wage bundle or any kind of official compensation. But this was like a social understanding that existed. Um, and so, like, it wasn't wage cuts that were on the table. It was that they were going to try to make things official and that caused a wildcat strike. Um, because, but it, like the, the the central management was like, what is this? I don't get it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's those kinds of invisible relationships you're talking about, uh, Jeremy. Um, okay, uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, the, uh, the, the the two different kinds here. I think I, I want to read the, the next the next paragraph because I think it gets to something very interesting. Um, Perhaps this partially explains why some managers are so very cautious about automation. They suspect that some such breakdown in communications will occur, but they do not like to say so. They know full well how important social communication in their system is, but they are guilty about it and feel they ought to have been capable of setting up a proper control organization, which did not have to rely on such apparently casual arrangements. This view arises only because the managers do not see the peripheral controls as different in kind from their own. They do not see the difference between volitional command information and autonomic servo motor information. So there are two, there are two different modes of control, but the managers and the, the capitalists being so identified with bourgeois control and bourgeois kind of ideology must insist that their version of it is the, the real one. 
And th there's something kind of psychological going on here that they feel guilty about it. There's a kind of Freudian kind of element here that like they feel that they're letting down their side, that their society is supposed to function as a top-down tyranny, but they have to confront the very real reality that it doesn't. And that drives them fucking crazy. Um, and it, 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 these, these two modes are, are in conflict, right? You have the, the paranoid top-down control and the more sort of distributed control. Um, and, and labor discipline is obviously a part of that, right? Like they can't admit that that's actually what's going on because it looks like a failure of uh, you know, the, the general has failed to uh, impose his will on the on the on the, the teeming mass of soldiers, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like it really reminds me of my last job that I did. Uh, had a manager who, uh, like our the senior manager or departmental manager, uh, said to us like. Um, you know, one of the most important things you need to do when you're working uh, for this university is forge connections across uh, workplaces and across departments and rely on those in order to function. Um, mm -hmm. But so like on that side, I can kind of give her points for bringing that up because it's, hey, it's a good point. Uh, but uh, on the other side, <laughs> um, <laughs> like I... Uh, she was going around and inspecting each of the classrooms. Um, and she's like, oh, this is just for, you know, like my information, blah, blah, blah. Like, this isn't actually an inspection. Uh, I was like, well, I like I'm scrambling from class to class to make things work here. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd feel a lot better if I was uh, actually inspected by one of my peers, because that's how we did in our man or in our uh, mm -hmm. class planning workshop. And she was like, no, absolutely not. Like, I will be in your classroom. Just tell me when. And that was like one of the big moments where I was like, I'm quitting this job because it's yeah, like, right. you know, you're not respecting my autonomy. I'm giving you feedback and it's just being ignored. So I'm like, the, yeah. this is this is worthless. So, uh, yeah, no, it's it's like even when they know. Like the the horizontalism is important. They can't quite get away from micromanaging right. or or uh, asserting you know this kind of silo control uh, because mm -hmm. it's just a reflex of of what it is to be a manager. Um, Absolutely, oh, and I think they would like when when the fantasy collides with the reality, the fantasy wins because they've got property, right? Like the property relations ensures that the fantasy wins and the yeah. reality of the firm is simply destroyed. Like I think in many, in many cases, like sub-psychologically, these people would rather destroy themselves than, than admit that they were wrong, right? Like that there's, there is actually intelligence below them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go to uh, Matt and then Lauren and then Third Creed. Yeah, the stuff about like um uh, you know, uh automating um and, and formalizing processes um uh, makes you think of like um uh Slack is kind of a variety absorber you know in in the way that like the uh, the information desk is in a um uh, the the one in um in the example in Brain of the Firm because like a uh, uh, like uh, I was originally uh, um I was working at a place where like uh, originally like they wanted like the data scientists to be like um you know everything's in Jira and you know you're, you're at the standups. Then they, re but and you know, like to their credit, they realize that well, like, like that that doesn't really work. What, like, you know, what, like, uh, uh, it hasn't really been as formalized, you know, in a way that you can like do everything in Jira. And so, you know, most things actually just wound up being in like little like one to one random conversations um in Slack. Um, uh, uh, and you know, like the flexibility of that and the ability to make like little, you know, little, little side rooms and 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 a bunch of additional little ad hoc communication channels. Like, yeah, the, the, that uh, that 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 worked. Yeah, for sure. Um. I was just thinking back to that example. The other thing that happened because of horizontalism I was encouraged to do was I realized that my working conditions were far worse than the working conditions in any other department in the school. <laughs> so <laughs> it's information that uh, my manager probably didn't want me to get. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's uh, that's another thing that could happen. Um, Laura, go ahead. Uh. Yeah, um, that, that just reminded me, oh, uh, sorry, I had a lot of thoughts. Uh, this is why I love this group, because, like, I listen to people who get this stuff, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, like, that makes a lot of sense. That is applicable to my life. Um, but, yeah, uh, my previous job in a consulting company had that say, had a similar thing where there were five offices across different countries, and no one knew what it was like in the other offices. And I was fortunate enough 
slash silly enough to um, like volunteer to go work at other offices and stuff um, to help like upskill people's writing and that kind of thing. And the first question is always like, what is it like over there? Like, is it really scary? Because like, the, like that manager really scares me. I can't imagine what it's like working there. But um, that's an aside. <laughs> my, my real point is um, how intricate like those horizontal, how, how difficult it is to like get those horizontal functions to operate on that kind of hierarchical level when you have managers who are adverse to that kind of communication. Um, and at our firm, there was we had like timesheets that were visible to everyone across the office, so you knew like where everyone's load was at. And like, the CEO tried to implement it to help with that distribution and not create those bottlenecks when stuff had to get done because there were like deadlines. Um, but my direct manager has like, <laughs> had control issues and kind of hated it when I was going to work for other people because he was like well, I pay your salary. And so therefore I control you. And it was really gross. Um, but it meant that uh, I, for my horizontal relationships with like other managers in different offices, they had to like email me and say, Oh, Hey, like, I like your work on this proposal. Do you have time? And then I'd have to be like, Oh, I do. But like my boss has this thing coming up. So like, you'll need to approach it this way. And then once we had that horizontal conversation, we then had to have like the official conversation to like, get things working and I, I just really resonate with everything I'm, I'm rambling down but I, I'll, I'll go away and think about this for myself for a while <laughs> and and come to my own conclusion sounds good uh okay uh let's go to third creed and then to jake it's just another horror story uh i'll, I'll make it really quick uh we we were in this uh, video conferencing app called i had a manager who really believed in horizontalism but wanted everybody, but wanted to be there for every horizontal conversation. And so he would, uh, we would be in, it was a video conferencing application called Sococo and we'd all be in one single room. And the requirement that was, was that we all keep our headsets on all the time. So it was just like the most fucking noisy thing right in both of your ears, people talking about things you didn't care about while you're trying to code him talking, him eating like almond salads, just like binaural experience in both ears awful it was obviously stupid it was obviously terrible we did that for like a year and a half and it was just uh i, I <laughs> people understand the horizontalism but like they still can't give up control it was such a perfect experience for that and then of course he was just as a manager was just thrashing from thing to thing and it was just it was the most absurd uh experience i've ever had but uh, at work experience i've had but uh anyway yeah, that's that's amazing. I, I mean, it makes me think of like, what if the Panopticon was like a workhouse? So like, like, like you have the Panopticon set up, but everybody's like actually like banging away making widgets or something. And just like <laughs> the cacophony that would result if everyone was like the Panopticon was actually just like a giant echo chamber. Um, and ideas. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, the, you know, the, the manager in the center would just go deaf, like literally. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that, that would be amazing. Uh, no, you know, almost. go ahead. I just said it was no signal, all noise. It was just oh, yeah. Noise. Yeah. Well, we like uh, Lauren and I live in this like a uh, kind of like a rectangular apartment block with a courtyard in the middle. And we were like sitting in the in the courtyard and looking around at all the apartments and like thinking about how, you know, with the new um, <laughs> it just kind of like laid bare the way in which the new like work from home thing is like extremely panoptic. Uh, but yeah, I was just thinking if like everybody had their windows open and they were like banging away on stuff, uh, uh, <laughs> shouting at each at their computers and that kind of thing, and it was all just flowing across the courtyard, uh, it'd be really something. Okay, uh, Jake, go ahead. Uh, yeah, that that does sound just like a nightmare. Um, I I think it's interesting just the way that like. Because, like you just mentioned, the work from home thing. <clears throat> now that everyone that can work from home is working from home, it really like kind of severed those those informal ties of like just being able to walk over to someone's desk and talk to them about something, or you know, ask if they're free like in person versus trying to like schedule a Zoom meeting or whatever. And just the frustration that I personally 
am like I, I started a new job like right as the lockdown started in my state and uh just not being able to have the not being able to set up those informal connections means I'm very like I feel very alienated from my coworkers. Like even though I've talked to them over Zoom sometimes, but it's just like I don't really know like how this informal setup is gonna go. And uh it's just given me very much like like I'm trying to figure out I don't have the authority to do this in my job, but just in terms of like political work of just how to how to formalize those in a way that keeps those informal structures like keeps that variability alive and like allows for the new connections to be made in a seamless way. Um, mm. I don't know what the answer is specifically, but yeah, well, I think we're going to, we're going to work towards that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm in exactly the same boat as you. I, I started a new job during this whole thing and uh, there's an ocean between me and my coworkers and it is very weird. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, the other thing that this brought to mind was when I was talking to the people at Lumio uh, and they were talking about like the role of positive gossip in making a workplace function. Um, and this is basically what Beer's describing here uh, in terms of these like horizontal, non-volitional, uh, but nevertheless essential feedback uh, mechanisms that operate between people. Um, and I think that's really important that like, he notes that this, the, these connections are not volitional connections. It's not like people like deliberately planning. It's more just like, oh yeah, like I got a sense of what's going on over there and I got a sense of what's going on over there. So I'm gonna kind of adjust my, my work. Um, uh, he says this, uh, so this peripheral communication system, which is parallel to the vertical command axis, deals in a different dimension of control from that of volitional command. So yeah, it's a, it's a separate thing. <laughs>